Welcome to Human Circus. Certain historical figures are so steeped in layers of legend that they start to lose focus in our eyes, and we almost need to remind ourselves that, yes, this was a real person. For me, and I suspect for many people, the character we're getting into today is one of those figures, an almost fantastical being existing in the strange in-between of myth, history, and poetry. And this illusory element isn't helped by his cultural appearances, his destination in Coleridge's opiated dream, his tall tales of empire in Italo Calvino's novel, his adventures in a Netflix series, and so on. To one degree or another, they swing wildly away from any attempt at historical accuracy. But they remain tethered to Kublai Khan and his Mongol empire, giving our character's life a surreal quality, that of a fable, but one grounded in this very real 13th century. If you're skeptical of his story, then your reaction is not unlike that of some of his contemporaries. There's an anecdote of his deathbed, where a friend brings him one of the manuscripts and urges him to set the record straight, to speak out against some of the book's more incredible statements. However, far from offering any retraction, he's supposed to have replied that on the contrary, he had not told half of what he'd seen. Of course, we're talking about Marco Polo here, the 13th century Venetian traveler, merchant, ambassador, adventurer, administrator, and many other roles too, both more and less likely. And yes, he was indeed a real person. Hello and welcome. I'm Devin, and this is Human Circus. I should start out today with an apology for the lateness of this episode. As you can probably still hear in my voice, I've had a head cold which won't go away. I've been waiting until it's gone to record, but for now I've given up on the gone part, so we'll see how this goes. I also have an announcement to make, that I've found a new home since I last recorded. That's a new hosting service, which shouldn't affect you at all, but also a new podcast network. Human Circus is now part of the RecordedHistory.net podcast network. It's full of great shows, which I can happily recommend, and I'm very excited to be joining them all there. One change which you will notice is that ads will start to appear on the show. Sometimes that will be for the other podcasts on the network, and sometimes that will be for sponsors' products. I realize that, given the choice, you'd probably opt for no ads in your podcast listening. But these sponsors are going to help make the whole project more sustainable for me, and also help me make improvements to the show. So I ask you to bear with them, and me. Now, announcements out of the way, let's get to the story. If you look at the title of this episode, you'll see that I'm starting a new series, focusing on the travels of Marco Polo. But we're not starting from scratch here. The previous run of seven episodes, To See the Mongols, led up to this point, tracing exchanges between Mongols and Western Europeans, and wrapping up by looking at the rise of Kublai Khan. So if you haven't listened to those yet, they do give a lot of good background and context for this series, and you may want to hear them first. Today, we won't be seeing much of Marco himself, just a glimpse of him at the end, really. 
Instead, we're going to set the scene with a look at his city of Venice and its role in Mediterranean competition and Eurasian trade. And we're going to look at the first Polo's meeting with Kublai Khan, that of Niccolo and Maffeo. This is the prelude. The story of the Polos could begin at many points. You could go with the origins of Venice as a 6th century safe haven for those escaping invasion in the lagoons. But that would be crazy. You could look at the centuries of allegiance to the Byzantine Empire, culminating in the Golden Bull of 1082, which allowed special trading rights and exemptions, most importantly with regards to trade in Constantinople. You could follow the early Crusades and the Venetians' response to them, slow by some tellings to sabotage their trading success in the eastern Mediterranean until they sensed the possibility of success, and then plunging in to earn privileges and advantages in the resultant crusader kingdoms. All of those would make sense, but not wanting to turn this into an extended history of Venice podcast, I'm going to start with the Latin Empire of Constantinople in the beginning of the 13th century. Now, sometimes it's easy to lose any sense of time in historical events. You hear a story, and it becomes a little bubble in your consciousness, adrift from any connection to all the other little bubbles bobbling about in there. So let's try to raft some of those bubbles together. Today, we're starting in 1204 and then jumping forward to the main storyline starting around 1260. What do those dates mean? What else is happening? What can we tie this particular bubble to? Well, the first years of the 13th century give us the rise of Genghis to becoming the great Khan of the Mongols, the founding of the Franciscan and Dominican orders, and also that of the University of Cambridge. And in 1215, on the 15th of June, the Magna Carta was signed. In the second half of the century, when our story will be taking place, we get the University of Paris, the birth of Dante Alighieri, the work of Thomas Aquinas. King Edward's struggles with Scotland and with William Wallace of Braveheart fame, and the beginnings of the Ottoman Empire. There's more, of course, there always is, but hopefully there's something there for you to hang this story next to. Now, let's get back to 1204. In that year, Constantinople had fallen to the Fourth Crusade, with Venice taking a role that has been depicted as opportunistic, morally malleable to the moment, one might say, even villainous, some have said. Others have painted a more complex picture, in which the Venetians and their doge appear less Machiavellian and more just playing the cards they were dealt. It's a great story in itself, and I'm going to put it aside as part of a near-future topic. For now, know that Venetian involvement had secured the city a significant share of the spoils. That meant countless works of Byzantine art and treasure, the great bronze horses of the Hippodrome, statues of the old Roman tetrarchs, and the 50,000 silver marks still owed for the fleet they had supplied. But it also meant a full three-eighths of the city and its empire. The Venetian leader, Enrico Dandolo, managed to arrange for right of conquest to a run of coastal territory and ports that connected his city to the Black Sea. The coast of western Greece, the Ionian Islands, the Peloponnese, Naxos, Adrianople, Gallipoli, and control of key harbor districts of the imperial capital itself to which he added the island of Crete, purchased for a thousand marks. He negotiated all of this, and also the exclusion of Genoa and Pisa, their Italian rivals in trade and more fatal forms of competition. The exclusion was part of a long-running, bitter back-and-forth, 
a sometimes bloody contest for the riches which the Mediterranean and its ports could provide. And this latest move placed Venice in an excellent position. The Lagoon City had problems, certainly. It now had an empire of sorts to administer to, and Crete alone was going to cost it years of fighting with the Genoans. But it also had opportunities. Whether on through the Red Sea by way of its trading relationships in Egypt, for which it had received a papal dispensation, from the Crusader kingdoms and east of the Persian Gulf, or overland from Constantinople and the Black Sea ports, Venice was now admirably situated for business in the goods of the east, of Central Asia, China, and India. It's the last of the three routes, the overland one, that we're concerned with today, and that was deeply impacted by the rise of the Mongol Empire. Linking China and India with the Mediterranean was hardly a new invention. Seneca, the first century Roman, had bitterly complained of the popularity of Chinese silk in his own time, and money and goods had flowed back the other way too. However, if you've listened to my last run of episodes, and you should, you've seen the degree to which Western European friars of the 13th century felt themselves to be entering a new and strange world, one which Alexander the Great had sealed away with walls of biblical proportions, and which may or may not have contained dog-headed men. At least one Roman embassy is said to have actually visited China. Yet a millennium later, we have these Franciscans taking their plunge into total darkness. What had happened? The short answer is that Western Europe had largely retracted from the broader Eurasian trade system. And this is not to say that the Silk Road, as these routes are popularly known, went unused. Jewish Radonite traders had traveled those paths, and as the Islamic caliphates had stretched from Spain to the Indus River, so had Muslims. But Latin Christendom had become detached from all of this in the periods between the fragmentation of the Western Roman Empire and the Crusades. Now, with much of Asia unified under a Mongol Empire and a reignited European taste for what the East had to offer, Phoenicians and others would join them and re-engage in the trade from the Mediterranean and through it from the cloth-producing markets of the North to India, to China, to the quote-unquote Spice Islands and elsewhere. This moment of relative unity that allowed them to ease into transcontinental business has been called the Pax Mongolica a reference to the idea of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that had stabilized the realms within its ambit and allowed for the kind of easy exchange of goods and ideas that could only occur under such conditions. Of course, it may also bring to mind the words that Tacitus had put in the mouth of a Caledonian chieftain, that the Romans had made a desert and then called it peace. And there's some truth to that here. The Mongols had done their fair share of desert-making, more than their fair share, really, as their conquests had forged a vast empire. But leaving aside how they had gone about it, the Mongols had, for a moment, made one what had been many, or at least they very briefly had. Mongol peace is a bit of a misleading term, as by this point the Mongol Khanates are already fighting each other. They didn't even have peace among themselves. Still, for mile after mile, you traveled under Mongol authority. And this is credited as having had an enormous impact. People, goods, and ideas could move more easily under the semi-unified rule. They were subject, broadly, to one set of laws and stable tribute gatherers, not ambushed figuratively and physically by this bandit lord's men and that local king's extortionate demands. 
Of course there was still danger. As we saw in the preceding episodes, the natural environment itself could be terminally daunting, and the threat of physical violence was clearly not entirely banished from the situation. Demons and less supernatural sources of death still lurked in the shadows of possibility, and the Mongol forces had not entirely tamed all within its domains. In their conquered territories, we find those who still held out. Friar William mentions Allens in the Caucasus, and also those who had escaped Mongol service, and now clawed out a living through raids and brigandry. But it was still easier. There was a system of law that discouraged local warfare and theft, an ability to anticipate to some degree the costs one would accrue in travel, and a saving in securing and protecting the goods in transit. I think a lot of people probably imagine the Mongol-controlled steppes as a land where you were promptly shot on sight by ruthless mounted archers. But as should be becoming pretty clear, religious figures, ambassadors, and most importantly for us, merchants, were generally able to move through it without experiencing such misfortune. Venice was one of the powers which was going to be doing quite well out of all of this. The city's merchants had been doing very well, in fact, trading, among other things, in cloth, spices, and slaves. And this Pax Mongolica, however misleading that Pax part may be, opened new possibilities, many of which could be found in Constantinople. In that city, they had the deck stacked pretty well in their favor. I mean, it's true that much of the local populace likely hated them. The Venetians were inseparably associated with the bloodshed of the Fourth Crusade, and events in which Constantinopolites had been violently juiced by their rulers to pay off the Crusaders, and then seen significant sections of their city, significant numbers of their homes, I should say, burned in massive fires, for which Venetians were in no small part to blame. So there was that. But they very much had the run of the city. In the port they had six jetties, they had churches, and they had two large fondaci, the facilities which catered to travelers and merchants with warehouse space, an inn, and a central courtyard to receive caravans of goods. They had a governor, or podesta, making trade agreements on their behalf, and they were propping up a faltering Latin emperor, whose barons even pawned the crown of thorns, supposedly the crown of thorns, to them in desperation. They shipped silk, spices, slaves, wood, and riches home to Venice. They had the run of the city, and the gateway to the Black Sea. But it couldn't last forever. Venice could not support such an unsustainable regime indefinitely. The Latin Empire of Constantinople increasingly lacked the approval of the locals, was weak from the start both militarily and financially, and was soon hemmed in on land by Nicaea, one of the Byzantine states that had survived exile from the imperial capital, and at sea by the Genoans, who wanted back in. The end couldn't be long, and in July of 1261 it came. The forces of Michael Paleologus, who'd schemed and fought his way to Nicene dominance, reclaimed Constantinople as Byzantine, not with the assistance of Genoan naval pressure, but simply by way of a poorly secured section of the walls. No prolonged siege was required, just the timely presence of Michael's general, who acquired two vital pieces of information. One, that the Venetian fleet and much of the Latin garrison were away raiding in the Black Sea, and two, that there was a convenient passage by which his men might enter the city, quietly, open a gate, and secure large portions of its wall by dawn. And so it went. 
The Latin emperor, Baldwin II, awoke to an unpleasant surprise and was forced to escape in such a hurry that he left his scepter and crown behind him, and the city's Venetians rushed to follow. But two of Venice's most famous men had already left the city. Two of the sons of Andrea Polo de San Felice, Niccolo and Maffeo Polo, had been carrying on their business in Constantinople since around 1254. We read that these respectable and well-informed men had embarked in a ship of their own with a rich and varied cargo of merchandise. The third brother in this fraterna compagna, Marco, but not that Marco, remained behind in Venice, likely to continue to conduct the merchant family's transactions in his brother's absence. It was a standard enough business arrangement, and made sense when partners would be gone for seasons or years at a time. In this case, the partners were going to be gone a little longer even than that. Niccolo and Maffeo apparently spent their time in the then-still-Latin imperial city, trading their varied cargo for fine and costly jewels. And just how much time they spent doing this is totally unclear. Dates generally in this part of the story are speculation and the tying together of known events. So you'll see the brothers Polo leaving Venice any time between 1250 and 1255, and in some sources, staying until as late as 1269. This last date is clearly incorrect, though, as they are to have left when the Latin emperor still reigned, and that puts a cap of 1261 on things. I'm going to follow historians such as Peter Jackson, who I relied on frequently in the Mongol series, and say that they departed Constantinople in 1260. They did so then, safely ahead of the Byzantine recapture of the city. But they may have been pushed to go by the increasing threat of political and economic instability, may have sensed the inevitability of coming change. It's fairly likely that they did, and that this led them to convert their stock to the gems, which of course carried the benefit of being highly portable and easily sewn away into their clothing. Across the Black Sea they went, bound for the city of Soldaya a trading center on the Crimean Peninsula from which foods, furs, and slaves passed on into Europe, Egypt, and elsewhere. It was much the same itinerary we saw Friar William follow, and William had mentioned meeting many merchants in the city from Constantinople. The Polos themselves had a trading house there, so they weren't strangers to Soldaya. But as with William, they wouldn't be staying in the city. Maybe they had not found business to their liking on arrival. Perhaps the demand for their jewels was not what they thought it would be, or the competition too fierce for profits to match their desires. More likely, though, it had been their plan all along to strike out overland from the Black Sea port. They would have heard, certainly, from their time in Constantinople, that the Mongol rulers had a tremendous appetite for gems both as luxury goods and as currency, and that they could expect to find ready buyers for what they carried whether by necessity or more likely by prior intent. They went east. Their mode of travel now was the horse, the travels of Marco Polo tells us. But it tells us little else. As we'll see when we get deeper into the text in the next episode, it really isn't a travel narrative, and it's often a frustrating read from which to try to piece together any kind of coherent story. We need to look elsewhere, then, for the details and what the road may have been like. They would have traveled northeast until they reached Tana, where the Don River meets the northeast corner of the Sea of Azov. There we can pick up the thread of Florentine trader Francis Balducci Pecolotti, 
who would write about the route nearly a century later in his Merchant's Handbook. He describes the road from Tana to the Volga River as 25 days by ox wagon, or 10 to 12 by horse wagon, and then from there up to Sarai by river. Salt fish and flour you would need to set out with, enough to last, but you could buy meat along the way. The Florentine reckoned this to be the most dangerous stretch of the whole road to China, though if you had 60 men in your company, you'd still, quote, go as safely as if you were in your own house. But even more than armed men, he emphasizes the absolute need to hire a good guide and interpreter before leaving Tana. It was foolish to imagine you might save money on a translator of lesser skill and expense, for you'd surely end up paying much more than you'd have saved at every step, and possibly find yourself in real danger. What arrangements the Polos made, we do not know. We do know that they had several Christian servants who they had brought with them from Venice, and would be with them for the duration of the trip. And we know that they made it. They made it to Sarai, and they made it to Berka Khan. And we should quickly cover who this was. This was the grandson of Chinggis Khan by way of Jochi, Chinggis's eldest son, though perhaps not his biological son. Berka was by this time Khan of the Golden Horde, the Jochi domain that Batu Khan had carved out and which stretched from central Ukraine to eastern Kazakhstan. Mafeo and Nicolo reached the Jochid Khan at an interesting time, but then, as I've said before, it was really always an interesting time in the Mongol Empire. In this case, Monka, the great Khan, had died, and there was a civil war, the Toluid civil war, between his brothers, to decide who would replace him, with Berka supporting the claim of the traditionalist younger brother against that of the eventual victor, Kublai. More regionally, the years building up to the Venetians' arrival had seen hostilities brewing between Berka and his neighbor to the south, his cousin Hulugu Khan, whose Ilkhanate now stretched across Persia, much of Anatolia, and northern Syria. Hulugu had committed various acts of mass violence against Berka's Muslim co-religionists. Most notably, he had sacked Baghdad and killed its Abbasid caliph. He may also have been responsible for the deaths of up to three Jochid princes who died under unclear circumstances as part of his campaign. And finally, he'd occupied land in northwestern Iran and around the Caucasus that had been part of the Jochid Mongols' territory. Balanced against all of this, familial ties started to look pretty inconsequential. For what it's worth, chroniclers tend to favor religion as Berka's primary motivator for going to war against his relative but he had financial reasons for doing so too. Because Hulagu had cut him out of the immensely profitable trade routes running through Iran, Berka and his successors, while continuing to fight for that territory, were going to need to look elsewhere. And this would actually lead to Golden Horde Khans really elevating trade through the Black Sea, something which had previously gone largely ignored. What had once been a distant second was now by necessity their first option in trade. And this pivot towards the Black Sea could already have been taking shape in Berka's mind as the Polos arrived. They would have found him holding court at either Sarai or Bulgar along the Volga River. The former was by then a walled palace surrounded by tents and pavilions, and complete with markets, religious buildings, and public baths, while the latter was something more established, a centuries-old urban center that had been the capital of the Volga Bulgars and was taken by the Mongols in 1237. And again, our source is pretty sparse here, with none of the details with which the Franciscans had colored their encounters with the Khans. 
It mentions Berka giving them a warm reception, and it mentions an exchange of sorts. Apparently, the Polos laid some of their stock and jewels before the Khan, and seeing how much they pleased him, made him a generous present of the lot. And Berka, pleased indeed and unwilling to be shown up as less generous, ordered them given double the jewel's value, and several rich presents too. It's an interesting moment. Perhaps we are meant to admire the merchants' daring success here, the immense profits of their largesse. But clearly, they had not come so far with the fruits of their training in Constantinople to just hand them over without expectation of reward. This was a predictable mode of transaction, which, with the one participant being royalty, was performed as an exchange of gifts. These Venetians were not the Franciscans of earlier decades, navigating unknown waters, and they had surely picked up in Constantinople and Soldaia from the readily available body of knowledge on dealing with Mongol royalty. Whatever their expectations, the Venetians seemed to have done well out of it. But for reasons we don't know, they didn't take their winnings and turn for home. They apparently stayed on for a year in the Khan's domains, but doing what? Were they trading this entire time? Had the Khan requested they stay? Or were they simply really, really enamored with life at Berka's court? Whatever kept them, they waited too long. They waited until Constantinople had fallen back into Byzantine hands, cutting off their return, with Venetian merchants blinded or otherwise maimed in the violent aftermath. They waited until open war between Berka and Hulagu blocked the possibility of passing down between the Caucasus and the Caspian Sea and to the city of Tabriz. And rather than wait any longer, they chose to embark on an absurdly long detour. They were going to try and circle round to the north of the Caspian Sea, pass down well to the east of it into what's now Uzbekistan, and then make a sweeping turn south towards Turkmenistan and Afghanistan and west from the Mediterranean. And it's probably for the best that it didn't come to that. As it was, their jumping-off point was Ukek, midway between Sarai and Bulgar, and it was a substantial hike to their destination, the city of Bukhara, a grinding 2,300 kilometers according to Google Maps, which doesn't offer a horse option, but estimates it to be a 473-hour walk. Of this epic trek, the text has only this to say, that at one stretch they crossed a desert for 17 days, and that they found there, quote, neither town, castle, nor any substantial dwelling, but only Mongols with their herds, dwelling in tents on the plain. It's been pointed out that this was an old caravan route, and that, contrary to claims of having seen nothing but tenting Mongols, they must have passed through substantial commercial centers like Urgench and Kiva along the way. The text does say that they took an unfrequented route. They were carrying a great deal of wealth, and likely fearful of being caught up in fighting or attacked by thieves. So maybe they avoided those centers, but that doesn't seem likely. It's more probable that this was just another missing element in the text. This wasn't, after all, their story, and storytelling was not the strength of the book. In Bukhara, the brothers found an ancient city and an important center of trade and religion, but one that had fallen on hard times. Genghis Khan and his army had arrived in 1220, and the garrison had left. With little other choice, Bukhara had surrendered. Its people were taken out of the city and the Mongols stormed in. They took everything they could, killed everyone that they found still within the walls, and left a burning ruin in their wake. 
One chronicler tells us that Chinggis contented himself with slaughtering and looting only once, and did not go to the extreme of a general massacre. The useful artisans and women were enslaved. The young men enlisted to be driven up against the walls of the next city and soak up the casualties. Everyone seems to have been taken, slain, or scattered. But then we read of a rebellion in the year of 1238, and new slaughter, and still then the city seems to have been re-established. Surgagtani Baki, an immensely powerful and capable administrator, and mother of Kublai and Hulagu, had overseen Bukhara's rebirth, financing an important madrasa there, among other projects. Though there would be more violence ahead, for now the city was again on the upswing, helped by its position along well-traveled and long-established trade routes. However, as Niccolò and Maffeo arrived, it was also caught in the middle of a war. Its connection to continental trade was strangled off, and so was the Venetians' progress. They were stuck in that city for three years, and we really don't know what they were doing. Maybe they took part successfully in the local trade that still continued. Maybe they took advantage of the opportunity to absorb knowledge and language from the diverse array of people that had repopulated the center of trade. The Persians, Mongols, Turks, Chinese, and more. Maybe they simply settled into the everyday life of a trading city on the tense knife edge of being swallowed up in civil war. However they occupied their time, they were eventually offered a curious escape route. Not a door opening back to their home in the west but further east and further in. Some men had come to town, were passing through, actually, and they happened to hear of these two Venetians who were living there. They were envoys of Hulagu, the Khan of Persia, and they were on their way to the court of Kublai Khan, ostensibly still great Khan of all the Mongols, though the empire was cracking apart at its dynastic seams. Would the brothers like to join them? They could promise safe and secure passage, an honorable reception and a Khan who would be most interested to meet them. Between that and being stuck in Bukhara, it was not a hard choice. Would they like to go? Certainly they would. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Again, we're given little detail as to the journey, but this time we're given a reason up front. The brothers witness, quote, many things worthy of admiration, but those are to be saved for later, for Marco Polo's telling. Fair enough, then. I'll do the same. But I will comment on the time this is supposed to have taken them, a full year from Bukhara to Kublai's court, on account, apparently, of the extreme weather, the snows and flooded rivers. Having just followed the journeys of elderly and overweight friars making the full trip from Constantinople or Hungary to the Karakorum region in less time, 
This seems a little weak on the Polo's part. Perhaps I'm being harsh on them, though. Maybe even in the envoys' company, war still slowed their advance. Maybe the envoys had business along the way, somehow pressing enough to delay them in their dealings with Kublai. Or maybe the weather really was particularly bad. They were going through some pretty punishing terrain, after all. And maybe it wasn't really a full year. However long it took, it's worth noting that even in this time of strife, they were able to make the journey at all. They'd been stranded in Bukhara for three years, but a traveler with the title and tablet of a Khan's envoy could still freely move about in safety, likely by way of the system of relay stations that dotted the empire and facilitated rapid travel for those on official business. Whether one year or not, these envoys delivered them to Kublai Khan, just as they had promised. And I've been following friars over the long roads to the Mongols for seven episodes now, so I fear I may be becoming a little blasé about meeting the Mongol Khans. Make no mistake, though, this was quite a big deal. According to the book, this was an enormous deal, and Kublai Khan had never seen a, quote, Latin before. That does seem a little suspect. Monka Khan's camp had been brimming with all manner of European artisans, slaves, and soldiers. Still, this was a milestone, a new kind of encounter, certainly the first Venetian merchants that we know of making the trip and meeting the great Khan of the great Mongol Empire and the founder of the Chinese Yuan dynasty in what was to be his summer palace. We don't have a great deal of information about the meeting, of course, but with what we do have, we can contrast the Venetians' experience with those of the friars who came before them. Those Franciscans had been successful in gathering information about these barely-known horse people, but had been repeatedly frustrated in efforts at making any kind of spiritual or diplomatic headway, and it had generally come away with more threats than promises to carry home. Kublai Khan greeted these guests warmly, with great honor and hospitality, and then, as previous Khans had of their visitors, closely questioned the Venetians on the European emperors. Quote, how they maintained their dignity and administered justice in their dominions, and how they went forth to battle, and so forth. And then he asked the like questions about the kings and the princes. The Mongols seem always to have been seeking to learn, and ready to take opportunities to discover what they could of far-off lands, peoples, and their rulers, from interviews like this, right up to the reconnaissance which preceded their invasions. Next we read that he inquired about the Pope and the Church and about all that is done at Rome and all the customs of the Latins, and the two brothers told him the truth in all its particulars with order and good sense, like sensible men as they were, and this they were able to do as they knew the Mongol language well. Now there are a few things to note here. First, that they had learned the language during their long travels, maybe in Bukhara, it was an enormous advantage over early visitors to the steppes, men like Friar William, who had eventually picked up only enough to realize that he could not at all trust his translator, and had struggled horribly as a result of those limitations. However, those previous travelers had generally had a bit of a different attitude towards sharing information with the Mongols. They had also answered questions about who the most powerful men in Europe were but they had been very aware that the people they were speaking to may very well soon be coming over the plains and through the mountains to use any information they were given against them. Previous travelers had also usually found excuses to not return with Mongol ambassadors, 
recognizing that these were potential spies and scouts they would be bringing home with them. Not so with the Polos. They seemed to have been only too happy when Kublai requested it, to accompany one of his men back to Rome. Maybe this was because the idea of Kublai taking action against Christian Europe was no longer really a live threat. While previous messages from the Mongols had offered only promises of invasion if the Pope and all his kings did not promptly offer their submission, the tone here was dramatically different. This was a Khan whose efforts were entirely focused on China, and whose western domains were really no longer under his control. Berka Khan's golden horde was independent, and Hulugu Zilkanate recognized Kublai's official supremacy, but not really his governance, and was in any case entirely caught up in fighting the Golden Horde and the Mamluks. So for Kublai, Europe was much further away than it had been for his predecessors. It was quite out of mind, as a prospective conquest at least. So what did Kublai Khan want? What he wanted was holy oil from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, a curious request, but not one that necessarily indicated any interest in converting. What he was asking for was, aside from anything else, a token of spiritual power and prestige to be delivered to him by a foreign religious leader. It was, as such, an instrument among many, I'm sure, which could demonstrate his greatness and the power and reach of his empire. I'm thinking here of the way the gifts from King Louis of France, of a special-made chapel tent and various books and relics, had been used twenty years earlier, how they were displayed to visiting leaders and ambassadors in a way that said, Look how the Franks have offered their submission. Look how the world's powers bow before me. I think the holy oil might have been put to similar use. Kublai may have also wanted the oil for quite a different kind of power. This was, after all, a holy object, held to be so by the Christian world. And as we saw in the last series, Mongols were often quite syncretic about these things. Spiritual power was, after all, spiritual power. So long as it worked, they weren't necessarily picky. He also wanted people. Specifically, he wanted the Pope to send him 100 well-educated Christians, well-suited to argument and to disproving the words of the idolaters and other folk. If they could accomplish this, it was claimed, then he and all his people would become Christians. But again, I don't think conversion was ever on the menu. It's quite conceivable that these promises simply made their way into the story by way of its Christian translators and transcribers, an issue I'll return to in later episodes. But that aside, the possibility of a Christian Mongol Khan had been dangled about before, with little to show for it. Moreover, Kublai had long relied heavily on the Buddhist and Taoist advisors who were very close to him, and it's unlikely he would reject them and potentially damage his rule in China. Instead, I think it's more probable that Kublai wanted the Latin Christians as a balancing force. He'd witnessed firsthand in northern China the violently disruptive effects of religious conflict, and had been called on then to facilitate a fierce debate to decide an issue between Taoists and Buddhists. These 100 of the Pope's men could be brought in now to counteract the dominance of Muslims, Buddhists, and Taoists in his council and administration or they might be put to use as officials in conquered regions to deflect local resentment from the Mongols themselves. Religious or otherwise, a purpose could always be found for 100 well-educated individuals. 
And with that, the Venetians had their commission, their task, and they'd been given something to aid them in carrying it out. A golden tablet, granting the bearers rights to make use of the system of imperial stations for shelter and fresh horses, and to call on local governors to escort them, and on cities and towns to provide provisions. They'd taken the long way to Kublai, but the way home should have been much smoother with that golden tablet in hand. Yet all does not seem to have gone smoothly. Their Mongol ambassador companion fell ill, quickly and seriously, and had to be left behind. And again, weather seems to have caused delay to an unreasonable degree. This time, it was said to be three years, owing to the extreme cold, the snow, the ice, and the flooding of the rivers. And they probably weren't three years. Likely the time span here is just meant to convey the great difficulty of their travels, the grand nature of their feet. But however long it took them, they reached Laos in Lesser Armenia, about as far east as you can go on the south coast of Anatolia, before the land curves south. From Laos, they were sailing for the crusader city of Acre, arriving in April of 1269, or 70, or 72, or 60, depending on the manuscript. And immediately, they received bad news in regards to their Mongol-commissioned errand, that mission to deliver a letter to the Pope, and secure holy oil, and a full hundred-strong complement of his best Christian minds. It turned out that the Pope was dead. This was pretty fresh news, working from the 1269 arrival date. Pope Clement IV had died recently, in November of 1268. What were they to do? They weren't going to be making the return journey to Kublai just yet, not if they were to complete their business with the Pope. They were going to need to wait for a new one to materialize. That's what the papal legate in Acre, Teobaldo Visconti, apparently urged them to do. And that's what they did. They, quote, determined upon employing the interval in a visit to their families in Venice, which was very sweet of them. As it turned out, they wouldn't be in and out the door in Venice either. This would be the longest papal interregnum on record, an excruciating electoral ordeal in which the cardinals were physically locked up in a building to motivate the decision-making process. Niccolo and Maffeo didn't know that yet, though. They arrived in Venice to find that while they had been away, time had passed there also. Niccolo had left a wife, and he returned to find her dead. He'd surely heard while in Constantinople that his son had been born, but he returned to find that baby Marco was already a young man of around 15 years old. And that's where we'll leave Marco Polo and his family for today. With my next few episodes, we'll get into the travels of Marco himself. We'll pick up his story as he joins Niccolo and Maffeo on the return journey. We'll get into the long quest to separate fact from fiction. And we'll get into the story of the books themselves. I'll talk to you then. Human Circus will return.